0: Greetings. I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 132, and today's guest is John Staff, founder and CEO of Getaway. With today's always connected and always on world, I think most people would agree that disconnecting is good for the mind, body, and soul. This is exactly the business that John has created, an environment where you can disconnect in one of their tiny cabins that are situated in nature a couple of hours from a major city. The goal is to let you recharge and spend time on the things that matter, like ourselves and our relationships. John is a serial entrepreneur. We actually wrote a story about his prior company called Favecast on VentureFizz several years ago. Well, Getaway ended up being the right idea as the company recently announced a $22.5 million Series B round of funding and is scaling aggressively. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the interesting places John has lived, including the basement of a frozen yogurt shop. The details on his background, including where he got his work ethic from and the multiple companies he started, what led him down the path of founding Getaway and how the company got its start, his experience pitching Getaway on Shark Tank and the impact it had on the company's business, advice for building a great brand, the challenges of building a team in the very early days of a company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that every Monday morning we send out two weekly digest emails? There's one for New York City and one for Boston. It is your weekly email to stay connected to all the must-know information from the local tech scene. It includes information on companies, jobs, events, deals, and more. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash email and look for the weekly tech buzz to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with John. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited because we, we VentureFizz covered a story about a previous company that you ran that we'll probably talk about a little bit. But uh we're here to talk about, you know, your background, getaway, and all the great things you guys are up to. But before we get into that, um, you know, I, I noticed in my research before this podcast, you've lived in some pretty unique places throughout your life that some of it was an inspiration behind your current company, Getaway. So, so where have you lived uh, You know, in these unique situations?
1: Yeah, I've, uh, I lived on a boat for a long time on Lake Superior. I lived in the basement of a frozen yogurt shop I opened during college. I lived nice. legally in the college library while my buddy and I renovated the frozen yogurt shop. And later, uh, when I was trying to figure out a company to start, I lived in an Airstream trailer for about five months, uh, traveling the West. So in many ways, it is not a surprise that I started a company around tiny houses.
0: Yeah, it's a perfect, perfect uh, foundation for like, okay, it makes sense why you did what you did. What was it like living in the Airstream trailer for five months?
1: was unbelievable. I mean, uh, the way it came about was I was essentially lying to people. I think there's a lesson in here. I don't know what it is, but... I was just lying to people, not in a malicious way, but in a, I wasn't doing anything about it when yeah. I said, I'm gonna go. what are you going to do next after you know, I was in between things? I said, I'm going to go live in an Airstream. I just said this to enough people that eventually one of them said, well, a friend of mine, I think she has an Airstream. Turned <laughs> out this woman, Bianca, who I'd never met, had three Airstreams. And she said, as long as you have it back by Burning Man, uh, you can just take it. So I said, well, my bluff has been called. So I flew out to LA, picked this thing up, and uh, lived for about five months in it, traveling through the West, uh, uh, about 8,000 miles. And uh, it was great. I, my strategy was, I didn't really, I do not want to stay in any RV parks, so I did that as little as possible. Uh, I had a place to live, so I didn't need an Airbnb, but I wrote to people on Airbnb that looked like they had a big yard or a big driveway that was near the town, so I kind of wanted to walk into town and get coffee or whatever. So I just wrote to all these people. And I said I don't want to rent your Airbnb, but can I park this thing in your yard? And uh, many of them said no, but a <laughs> few of them said yes. And uh, and it was great. I got to live like a local. I tried to stay for you know three three weeks at a time, four weeks at a time, in a bunch of places, and get the feel of the place, which was uh, a super cool opportunity.
0: That's really cool. And so did you get the airstream back in time for Burning Man.
1: I did. Yeah. I, me and Bianca are on good terms, I think.
0: <laughs> I love the, uh, the yogurt shop uh, living in the, in the basement there. That's uh, scrappy, entrepreneurial stuff.
1: Filled with asbestos, filled with dust. <laughs> a lot of other things besides uh, scrappy and entrepreneurial.
0: <laughs> asbestos, insects, other creatures. Um, so let's rewind the clock. So, so where did you grow up and, and what did your parents do for work?
1: I grew up in uh, very northern Minnesota, about five hours north of Minneapolis. Uh, originally in this little town called Leonard, Minnesota, uh, of 54 people, uh, when I was a kid, 29 people now, uh, sadly, uh, and then later moved 50 miles down the road to the town of Bemidji, Minnesota, which is about 10,000. Um, although we lived 30 minutes outside of that town in a, a little house my dad built. You know, my parents sawed the um, sawed the lumber from the land. My dad built this house on a little lake with four houses on the Mississippi River. So. In many ways, I like grew up, you know, in a getaway, in a resort setting, uh, you know, a small house. But you know, it was a hundred steps to the lake. You could, you know, take it off and, and go exploring. And but just thinking about it, so that's where I grew up. Uh, dad, uh, mom and dad originally owned a bar in this tiny town, and uh, that that burned down when I was about three years old. Dad uh, then you know built built stuff and was a bartender. Mom uh, has worked in the factory. Uh, wood products factory making lumber, uh, two by fours, two by sixes, OSB, oriented strand board. She's done that for about twenty five years. Uh, so, uh, very much a you know kind of blue collar family, I guess, in, in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, but I, I read a cool story that well, you nominated your mom for uh, so you were running something that you know nominate someone for a getaway house and you nominated your mom because she went back to college and like completed her degree the same time you did, right?
1: Yeah, I did nominate her. She didn't win. Uh, I guess I can get her a getaway somehow, some way, otherwise. But we rolled out this program uh, where you can nominate somebody for a getaway who wouldn't think about going to a getaway or who wouldn't be able to go to a getaway because part of what we believe is we want, you know, this is good. It's good for everybody to just disconnect. It's good for everybody to have a little time and space just for yourself, to collect your thoughts, to be bored, to be creative, to have a deep conversation with your partner. And, and we, you know, we wish we could provide that to everybody and we want to at least provide it to a handful of people who wouldn't otherwise get to go. So we did this program and, and I, to kick it off, I nominated my mother because she's worked, you know, 12 hour, hour days, you know, for, you know, she'll work nights and then she'll work days and then she works nights again. and She's been doing this for years and she's been doing it, you know, in Minnesota winters, working outside in park at night. So uh, I have endless respect for her and if I have any work ethic at all, it, it comes from, from her. But yes, she, you know, worked in one of these factories through 2008 that factory shut down she went back to school um, in part uh, sponsored by government retraining programs uh, she ended up graduating the same year i did uh, went to work in town at a bank and decided that you know she liked the factory a lot better so she ended up uh, back at the factory across across the road from, from the place she previously
0: worked that's such a cool story um, such an inspiration! I love stories like that. Like my dad, uh, he he ran a, a leather coat factory. So just that same thing, like the work ethic that I developed through him, is just uh, like just has totally catapulted what I can achieve in, in a day. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, we can't get her to retire. I mean, you know, this is a this is off off topic a little bit, but you know, work is is a lot of things, including a social outlet for a lot of us, and I think for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, she might be there, she'll, she'll be there till the end of time if she has her way.
0: Yeah, well, so you decided to study government at Harvard. So what, what were you thinking there? You, were you thinking to get into politics or media or like what, what were your intentions?
1: Yeah, I mean, enough time has passed to tell you the truth, which is it was the major that allowed me to do all the other stuff I wanted to do in college that was not school. <laughs> uh, I was politically interested and like, you know, followed all that stuff when I was a kid, much so more than, than I do now. And it's, it's obviously gotten so crazy. It's hard to follow in in a way, but um, yeah, I was interested in politics, but it was also like, you could get a degree doing, doing government uh, and still do, do lots of projects on the side, like open frozen yogurt
0: shops. And so how did you get into entrepreneurship? You talked about the frozen yogurt. So how did that all come about?
1: I'd always been interested in in business and I graduated college in 2010 and so at that time like the Silicon Valley like everybody has a startup like we're all like watching Y Combinator like demo day happen in real time wasn't yet a thing it was just starting to be a thing and it was starting to be a thing in the way that you know pitch decks like came into my consciousness because you know buddies were. We're creating them, but they, they didn't say I'm creating a, a business plan or I'm creating a pitch deck. They say I started a company and the company was a PowerPoint presentation. And so my buddy and I sort of cynically said, you know, in a way, like, well, we also want, are interested in business and want to start a business, but we want to do something real and tangible and, and all that good stuff and uh, went about it completely the wrong way, which is we just started wandering the streets looking for real estate. And we found this storefront that was for rent. We liked the storefront. And we liked where it was. And so we rented it without knowing what to do with it. And then said, okay, we've got the storefront. It was near Tufts University. Pinkberry, the frozen yogurt thing, hadn't really made it to the East Coast yet. And so we said, okay, people seem to like this frozen yogurt stuff. And so we ended up setting up this frozen yogurt shop. And, and that was my first real foray into business, besides all the you know little kind of schemes of childhood. <laughs> but um, you know, got a bank loan somehow, you know, even though we were two kids in college with no income and no net worth and, you know, rapidly, you know, spent all of those proceeds on building this place out. And then, and then we, you know, had jobs serving frozen yogurt instead of going to class, which taught me a lot and probably wasn't, you know, the best, best decision. Uh, but that's how I got into it. And in a lot of ways I learned, you know, I learned, a ton about business from from that experience, even though it was short lived and really kind of small in a certain way. But it was you know, we were on the hook to make those payments, and we you know looked out the window every day. And if it rained, guess what? Nobody buys frozen yogurt, and so you know, we're kind of living on the knife's edge of business uh, in a certain way, even though it was a small company. And so that that taught me a lot of the good and the bad, and uh, and tried to carry that forward into what I did afterwards.
0: So what did you do after that?
1: So after that, I feeling a little bit bruised after that wasn't a, a, a slam dunk, uh, had accepted a job at Google and then was approached by a professor and one of my buddies from college who were starting a company uh, that was eventually called Breathable Foods and they wanted uh, wanted me to be involved. And So I did what you're not supposed to do, which is I walked away from the job offer I had accepted at Google, which was kind of my safe, safe dream job, and did this crazy startup thing instead. And uh, this company happened to be, you know, born out of Paris, uh, we incubated it in London. So I spent, you know, suddenly I'm in Europe where I'd really never been uh, building this company. We eventually moved it back to Boston. But the company was, as I mentioned, breathable foods. We had patented the only inhaler that delivers particles to your mouth instead of your, your lungs, uh, which we intended to use to deliver vitamins, minerals, and supplements. We did a little bit of that, but really our, our main product ended up uh, kind of against all, all odds in a certain way being a breathable energy product, like a breathable uh,
0: red bull. Yeah. So like a, like a five minute energy type of thing, like, except it was just something in hell.
1: Like that's right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Now so there was some challenges with that though. Like the, so I guess the FDA somehow got involved.
1: I walked into, we were tiny company right after we moved back to Boston. We had just put together our pre-launch campaign uh, because we were going to roll out to stores in Boston and New York. We were not in stores yet. We had an online store up, uh, but, but really nobody had heard of us. And it was right before the holidays. And I walked into my office uh, in Harvard Square, picked up the phone, and, uh, and the person on the other end said, "This, hi, I'm calling from Bloomberg News. Would you like to comment on Senator Schumer's uh, allegations against your product? <laughs> Oh, like, what? This is, this is <laughs> really know, everybody had already like gone home for the holidays and but lo and behold you know uh, there was senator schumer standing like in a library surrounded by children holding up our product that nobody had ever heard of saying you know this is a, a club drug designed to allow you to drink, drink until you drop and uh, i didn't know this but it turned out he, he was instrumental and in kind of Taking down Four loco if you remember that controversy, and mm-hmm. this was a follow-up to that effort. And so, his his kind of coming out against us led to uh, some attention from the FDA, and we were we were investigated, and, and you know we got the all clear, didn't do anything wrong. And in reality, that put us on the map. We went from you know not being heard of to selling literally hundreds of thousands of dollars of product uh, overnight, and having to quickly figure out how do we. You know, how do we produce all this product and how do we ship
0: it? Got it. Yeah. Sometimes that publicity, no matter what flavor it is, can definitely work to your advantage. 100%. So then that led you down to starting Favecast, which is the company that we wrote about on Inventure Fizz a, a long time ago, which I still think is a good idea.
1: Oh, thanks. You're the only one.
0: <laughs> so wow. it was like a video version of Yelp, right? Like you'd show, like take a video of your the place you're eating at?
1: Yeah, I also think the idea was, I appreciate the flattery. I think the idea was right. I started this with a, a couple of Boston-based ba- folks, and, and the idea was that we're gonna move from advertising that's commercially produced by you know, corporations and brands to you know, advertising things to each other. And, and of course, this is happening now via the Instagram influencers and YouTube unboxing videos. And so you know, I think the seed of the idea was right. Uh, we spent about a year on it, and, and, and frankly, we didn't really get anywhere. Um, thank you for 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 writing about us and, and helping us for it along and you know I think as I like do the autopsy of that experience, which is now you know well in the rearview mirror, the thing we most did wrong is we ignored you know the 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 classic lessons of you know listen to your customer, take as much feedback as you can, and iterate as quickly as you can. We sort of stubbornly were just trying to insist on this thing being a thing. And, you know, that, that, that just doesn't work. And so, ultimately, you know, closed up shop there, but, but as, you know, is, is so often the case, learned more in failure than in success.
0: So what, what uh, prompted your decision go back to uh, B-School at HBS?
1: Yeah, so by this time, I've, you know, I've done kind of two or three startups, depending on how you count those. And, you know, I'd figured out I loved starting things, and I loved building companies, but, uh, especially following the faith cast experience where really we were chasing like what does TechCrunch think is cool? What does Mary Meeker think is going to make people a bunch of money? I said, okay, enough of that. I need to, you know, figure out a company that, that I love, that I, you know, deeply want to be a customer of and that I want to run for, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years, however long people allow me to do it. And the problem was I didn't know what that was. I mean, there's so much advice for, you know, especially, uh, I guess, young people. Of like follow your passion and like that's all well and good unless you don't know what it is and so my way of solving that was one take a five-month uh road trip in an airstream trailer as we talked about and two enroll in graduate school uh and i ended up going to hbs and as an entrepreneur i don't know if this has changed but you know at that time it was surprising to me there was so much negative pressure from other entrepreneurs not to go to business school and uh you know, and and I kind of get it. Like it, it's expensive, and it, you know, it's not for everybody. I, I totally agree with that. But it was odd to me. It's like, <laughs> why are you so personally invested in how I spend my my time and money? But the reason I did it was explicitly to buy myself two years to think and tinker and pilot. You know, where I was fairly confident I could come up with another company to start and just kind of get going with. But I wanted to take enough time to figure out the right company to start and. You know, I get that, you know, braver people or people with different circumstances, you know, may have just taken that time in another way. But for me, grad school was a way to buy myself that time to be really thoughtful about the next thing to take on and to be able to incubate it. Like Getaway is a a weird company still. Uh, When I started it, it was especially a weird company, you know, when it came to, you know, how does this thing grow, get funded, scale, all of that good stuff. And, And that time allowed me to solve at least some of the initial questions and get it to a place where it was, you know, fundable
0: and buildable. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a very common theme for a lot of the people I've had on the podcast of you know, going to B-School for that purpose, knowing you are going to start a company, just you know, taking that time. And of course, you're building an amazing network at HBS. So it's uh, obviously time well spent. <laughs> well,
1: that's that. I mean, that's a HBS is not, not, not sponsoring me to say this on your, your podcast, but I thought it was only going to be time. And in fact, I was pretty skeptical about the people because I'd heard all these horror stories about terrible HBS people. And I was kind of cynical about, you know, at least Harvard's commitment to entrepreneurship and startups. Uh, Because when I enrolled, you know, in college at Harvard, there was a, I read in the student handbook, it said, you may not start a business while you're a student here. Like, do not get caught using campus resources, including the campus mail for running a business. So... You know, when I enrolled in college in two thousand six, this you know the school was explicitly anti-student businesses, and then the iLab came along and all this kind of stuff, and I kind of said, "Yeah, is this just a marketing ploy against Stanford or whatever?" But uh, but my experience at HBS was not that it was there was a lot of people ready and willing to help with with advice, with connections, with you know, in some cases, money, uh, and so this you know this company wouldn't exist without having been there in more ways than one.
0: So uh getaway like how did the you know you talked a little bit about how the idea originated But you know, how did you finally land on this as a potential business opportunity?
1: Yeah, it was I, I told you about this road trip and, and while I was in Montana I discovered tiny houses and the light bulb went off You know, but the first one really was was personal. It was boy I want I want to have one of these things and I I want to stick it far enough away from where I live that I can uh, escape but uh, near enough so that I can go there frequently And what I cared about was that, you know, there was no Wi-Fi, it was going to be a sacred place where I didn't do work, and I didn't want anyone to bother me. And, you know, only later did the startup gene kick in and say, maybe other people want that too. Um, And uh, at that time, you know, this being five years ago, and I started thinking about it four years ago when, when we actually had our first guest, it was not nearly as obvious that, you know, people were desperate to disconnect, to get away from the city, to get away from work. And to just kind of be and have a little bit of space, Uh, but you know, fortunately through those prior experiences and and a lot of other uh, good fortune in life, I was able to scrape together a little bit of money uh, from seed investors to do a pilot and and figure out that that other folks wanted it. But really, it started with you know, I'm, I'm 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 building a company. I want to be a customer of.
0: So how did you actually get that started? You talked about raise a little bit of seed capital, but so did you, how did you build the first house? And then where where did you just, how did you decide where to put it?
1: So I um, partnered with some folks from the Harvard Graduate School of Design, uh, who helped design uh, the cabins, uh, the initial cabins. I got my dad to build the first cabin. uh, So I flew him out from Minnesota. We rented uh, literally under the Tobin Bridge in Boston, there's a, a recycling center, a dump. And we rented the back corner of this garbage dump, and they let us build the cabins there. Uh, later, we rented a falling-down warehouse in the east. Once we got evicted from the dump, essentially, we rented a space in the uh, East Boston shipyard uh, and built the other you know, initial cabins, knowing that we want, you know, didn't want to be in the construction business, but that we'd learn a lot by doing it. Uh, so that's how we built the first cabins, And then on the land, I just wrote to everybody on Christ's list that I was trying to sell their land within a two-hour radius of Boston, which is where we did the pilot, and said, could I please lease your land from you? Again, most said no, but some said yes. And so I wrote, you now like these silly, like, four-paragraph leases that they should not have signed and I should not have signed. Uh, but that gave us our, our first land. I mean, there were, like, month-to-month leases for land. And that gave us a place to put these cabins you know for the for the pilot and uh, that was enough to get us through the first gosh almost the first year I guess
0: and eventually you ended up on shark tank how, how did that all come together like you know I've had the, the founders of love pop on and you know just you know HBS has done a good job like well I know Tom Eisenman was on too and I asked him about the whole shark tank thing and he you know, said like we weren't seeking out ABC Shark Tank. They kind of came to us and it ended up being a good thing, but they were skeptical at first. But uh, so what was that experience like?
1: Well, we didn't intend to do it. Uh, one of the weird things of, of Getaway is, you know, genuinely didn't know if anyone would care about this idea at all in the beginning. So I was, you know, making my lists of friends that I was going to be uh, begging to be our first guests. And then the magic thing happened of, you know, announced this and, and immediately got a lot of press and, and fortunately and more importantly got customers and better than that they had good experiences by and large but one of the weird things that happened during that initial like craziness of press was we got all these inbound inquiries for reality television I think we had like a dozen of them eventually and you know it was everything from you know do you want to do a reality thing where people go to cabins in the woods and try to disconnect to which we're like maybe to like, do you want to, you know, to weird stuff, like do you want to like, do a thing on Animal Planet where we send pets to little cabins, all, everything in between, but one of them, one of the inbound breeds was from from Shark Tank, which, you know, we were disinclined to do for, you know, for maybe the same reasons that Tom mentioned of, you know, being, uh, I guess, it's a lot of, it's a lot of risk, uh, and maybe some reward, Uh, but ultimately, you know, our conclusion was, You know, are we so arrogant as an early stage company as to say that we don't need a free national commercial, uh, you know, whenever this thing airs? You know, we were sold out at the time we decided to do it, but said, well, who knows, right? Like, I think most entrepreneurs live in the land of paranoia all the time. So every month was worried about, like, the good luck is going to run out. We're not going to get any more press. We're not going to get any more customers. And so mostly we decided to do it for you know, for that reason of, you know, free, free national publicity. And then the other reason that now enough time has passed to say out loud is that this will be a weird life experience, right? Which is not, not a good, not a good, not a good, not a reason you tell your investors at the time. But like, yeah, I'm kind of curious to know what it's like to go like spend a bunch of time, you know, on, on a film location doing a TV show that I've never done before. So that was part of the calculus as well.
0: So what was the actual experience like? So are you actually like behind those doors? They open up and you have the four sharks sitting there. I know that segments, obviously they're, they're, they take longer than what they edit the final episode to be, but let's see, you had uh, Mr. Wonderful, of course. Uh, was Robert there? Was it uh, Mark Cuban and Chris Sacco was the other like guest shark for your yeah, episode, Barbara, right?
1: Wasn't there, So it was, uh, let's see, Kevin, Barbara,
0: Barbara, okay.
1: Um, Lori, uh, mark cuban and chris sacca
0: got it okay uh and you got an offer from chris sacca that didn't work out now so there was a little bit behind the story where you were actually raising money at the time and his offer was conflicting with the valuation like you wanted the prior valuation, something to that yeah, degree right
1: yeah. it was so long ago but it was just a crappy valuation basically yeah. which is standard you know for 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 that show i think so we didn't go in with a lot of optimism that we were going to be offered a good deal. Um, And, you know, in reality, we weren't. And so, and we had been out raising money and, you know, it's just, I got in trouble, I think, on the show for referring, you know, referring to real investors versus the sharks, you know, who then gave gave me trouble for not thinking they were real. But the reality is, you know, at least if you live in, Kind of venture startup world, uh, you're going to get a better deal if you have a good idea, you know, and a little bit of traction and a good team or whatever. You're going to get a better deal, uh, not on TV than you're going to get on TV. I think almost all the time.
0: Is it pretty nerve wracking given the pitch when you're on air like that?
1: Yeah, super. I've never prepared. Uh, I did it with uh, Peter Davis, who I started the company with, and uh, we prepared more for that show than anything because you only get you only get one chance, and it's not a sympathetic audience. You know, uh, so yeah, we, we were we were pretty nervous about it.
0: And what, what did it mean? Like, is there a big boost from people watching that episode? And some of it still airs on other channels. So, but when that original episode aired, was there just like a big boost?
1: Huge, yeah, we went from, you know, at that time, I think concurrent, not not daily traffic, but concurrent visitors on our site, we had a few at a time, to, we had hundred thousand concurrent visitors on our site, which is nuts. And you know, we had tried to do everything. We were on WordPress at the time, you know, which we are no longer. But tried to scale everything up as much as we could, and it was just fruitless. Uh, the website quickly went down, and you know, by the time the episode aired, we'd pretty much been sold out anyway. But it filled in some gaps for us. But our big, you know, unlike Wambi and Love Pop like I not to speak for him, but I think he can probably make as many greeting cards as, as he needs to to fulfill sales. We have a product, you know, a company where we have a very limited amount of inventory by definition. And so, you know, it it was meaningful for brand exposure. It did fill in some gaps, you know, in the forward bookings, but we couldn't capture even close to the amount of interest that it brought in.
0: So, So let's talk about the current state of your business now. Like, so what's, like, like how many cabins do you have? Uh, you've raised more capital. So what's your you know, current situation as it relates to the employees? Just bring us up to speed on the business as a whole.
1: Yeah. So as of uh, last week, we have seven outposts, we call them, seven locations open. So that's uh, outside of Boston, New York, D.C., Atlanta, uh, between Pittsburgh and Cleveland, outside of Portland, Oregon, and outside of L.A. Uh, so that's compared to three at, at the beginning of this year. So we've been busy opening. Getaway locations will open two more before the end of the year. So that'll be Dallas and another New York location. Uh, so, you know, this is in, in many ways, hopefully more than this, but one thing it is is a unit based business. So, you know, uh, and if you don't know what those are, think Sweet Green or, you know, Soul Cycle, anything, you know, typically that ends up with, with a four wall uh, model. Uh, we don't have four walls, but we have a business that's geographically located um, that we have to you know, staff up, operate. We have real people come to a real place. There's magic that happens in real places and there's also all the complexity and risks of real people coming to real places as opposed to, you know, for example, building an app like I did in in my past. So we've just been building the machine to deploy those units as, as quickly as we can without killing the magic of it. Uh, because at the end of the day, this, You know, there is a simpler version of this business that that we don't care to build, which is a hotel in the woods business uh, where, you know, we would sort of build these units, put them on properties and then list them on Expedia or wherever and call it a day. Um, We are not that. We, you know, we're on purpose a consumer lifestyle brand that says, you know, we want to be something meaningful in your life. We want to be the place where you go to find a little bit more time and space for yourself or to spend with your loved ones. And that's our reason for being on the planet. And, you know, that requires us to know what we're not as well as what we are. We're not a good place to go have a reunion of your whole fraternity. We're not even really a good place to go when you want to go skiing down the road or when you want to visit your, you know, great aunt Sally who lives in the area. We're a great place to go when you want to finally have the respite of, you know, a little bit of time that's, that's unscheduled and unplanned.
0: And like, how have you gone about building your audience, the, you know, customer acquisition side, is it like a, a lot of word of mouth? Uh, is it, you know, being, you know, advertising in those right lifestyle type of, you know, brand, you know, magazines or online?
1: Yeah, it's been a ton of word of mouth for we We're super lucky and grateful to have wonderful guests who, you know, uh, fortunately have good experiences. It seems most of the time, and who come back and who tell their friends. So that's huge. Uh, we've also had very good luck with with press or earned media, uh, who have written a lot about the company over the years. So those have been two big drivers. And now we've supplemented that with you know some email marketing and some paid paid digital marketing in addition to a few smaller channels. Social has also been big,
0: of course. Sure. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's uh, you know it's a very Instagram-worthy type of uh, opportunity for people to yeah. share. And what, what about um, looking back, right? So, um, you know, you're building up a, a business that does have that physical product and experience. Um, what, what, what are some of the, like, the biggest challenges that, that you've had to overcome? Is it like building the cabins or, you know, making that each visit, you know, just an amazing you know, part of that person's journey?
1: Yeah, it's a complicated business, no doubt. Like, uh, you know, on the face of it, and I hope this comes across to our, to our, our customers and potential customers, it's very simple it's just a cabin in the woods like we're not disrupting anything we're not like this is not computer vision AI like cabins in the woods it's just a cabin and it's in the woods and you know we hope we're delivering it in a nice way that makes it easy and meaningful for you to experience it that said compared to most startup businesses it has a lot of unique complications again it's you know physical locations real people real places going there it is you know, asset light for a real estate company by far, but asset heavy for a startup company. And so, we've had to think hard about you know how to finance things. And, you know, when I started the company, I wasn't in real estate, I wasn't in hospitality, uh, and I didn't know what a financing structure was. And now, like, I my joke is I spent college and grad school trying to avoid being a banker, and a lot of days it feels like I'm a banker. It's like, well, you know, what kind of like deal terms do we want to get for like this location here or whatever? Um, and so that's taken, taken some effort. And then, you know, what, what you said is is spot on, which is, you know, we've got to get it right for every guest every time. And, and so I talked to the team about like when we open, you know, cabin number 1000 outside of quarter lane, Idaho or wherever it is, the person who checks into that cabin doesn't care that we're on shark tank, doesn't care like that. We have a, you know. Uh, we're in Brooklyn. Doesn't care that we raised a bunch of money from this person or that person. They care that their cabin is clean and that there are matches so they can start their campfire and have their s'mores. You know, and anybody I think in hospitality will will tell you how hard it is to get you know every all of those details right for every guest every time. And so, you know, fortunately we had good advisors and mentors early on who kind of raised our awareness as to the difficulty of that and 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 therefore, you know encourage us to tackle it on, which we've done, done from the beginning
0: well, What advice would you give to other entrepreneurs? Um, you've done a great job, you know I think the name of your company is great. I'd be interested in how you came up with it uh and then you, you know, the logo is uh well done, and you've just built a, a great brand and that has trickled into getting great press and awareness so what what advice would you give to other founders around you know trying to follow similar success.
1: Well, Thank thank you for saying that. Uh, There's a a few practical tips and then I'll zoom out. The practical tips are, you know, I, you know, brand is about consistency and brand is a lot more than logos and colors. Like I hate the word brand because I think that's what people think it is a lot of the time. Uh, But really brand is about, you know, what do you believe? You know, like your mission statement and your brand statement I think should be the same thing. Your vision and your brand statement should be very closely related. And so, you know, when we think about brand, it's like, what do we think is true? What is the world we want to live in? What is the world we want to create for the people that uh, are, are, you know, our followers and our guests and our fans? And that's what brand means to us. And then, you know, we you put some pillars together and say, okay, you know, the core tenets of of that brand are, you know, we have a dear friend service mentality, which means we want to interact with our guests as if, you know, they're our friend borrowing our house in the woods, sort of thing. We have one called uh, everything you need and nothing you don't. So, you know, and that's really clarifying when you know people in the organization are trying to think about do I do this or do I do that. You can return to those those pillars, and there are others that should clarify what decision you should make on decisions large and small. So. There are these tactical things around you know, putting together a brand architecture with brand pillars and, and, and of course, yes, picking a good name and logos and colors, but really it's about what do you believe, and, and that's my kind of zoom-out answer to your question, which is I didn't know much about this or how to do it before I started it, uh, but try to start from a place of truth uh, to say something that's perhaps, you know, one notch too grand, but... But this was, you know, this does come from my heart and and Pete's heart, who I started it with. Uh, You know, the way we came up with the name was we said, we wish we had a cabin where we could get away. And we said, that's a pretty good name. Um, And that is, especially in the early days when you don't have much in the way of team, you don't have much in the way of money, and you don't have much in the way, you know, this formal stuff I'm talking about, about brand architecture and pillars and all that. You know, it's very helpful to be able to go back to your own heart or your own head and say, I think it should be this. Um, And this is where, you know, there's different schools of thought on should you build, you know, a company that you want to be a customer of uh, or you, you know, should you do a lot of market research and build a company that best responds to market demands? And I'm sure the truth is a little bit on both sides. But for me, you know, I don't think I could have done this in the way that we did it if it wasn't. Self-informed, for lack of a better word.
0: What about the the, the fundraising side of things? Um, you know, because you are building a business that is maybe contrarian to, you know, like you said, AI and all these buzzwords of VCs, and it's a physical asset that is constrained by locations and unit base, right? So, like, how, how how is the fundraising process? Um, you know, because you, you closed another round recently. Uh, and you know, how did you avoid that you know, series A, series B funding gaps that you hear about?
1: Yeah, good question. It's um, one of the frustrating th- things to hear as, a, not, as an entrepreneur who has not yet raised your money or your round is there's a lot of money out there. Like there's a lot of people that say, oh, there's, there's money everywhere. Capital is a commodity. You go know, like, ah, if it's such a commodity, like where is it? Where is it? <laughs> Back the truck up. Um, and so now I say that so I can say there's a lot of money out there. And um, and it's a matter of matching your project, your ambitions, what you want to do with the right capital. Now, that doesn't mean don't listen and don't be flexible if, if everybody's telling you no. I've had some meetings where, you know, I walked in and I said, everybody's telling me no. And could you please help me figure out how to solve that? Um, but for this business in particular, there's a lot of people that won't fund it. And that doesn't mean they're wrong. Uh, it doesn't mean that they don't get it. And it took me a while to learn this lesson oftentimes what it means is they have a fund that has a thesis and a mandate and even if they want to put money into it they're not allowed to it would be professionally irresponsible for them to so you know is a blockchain fund ever gonna fund getaway no Um, is a real estate hospitality fund or family office or investor going to fund it sure Uh, and some have you know, angels, you know, all meld together. And this is where it gets hard because, in you know, some of the angels angels and the seed funds, even some of the VC funds, they all run together. And so it's not as clear as we're, you know, we only invest in the blockchain or we only invest in hospitality. Um, And so you have to kind of feel them out. And I think the best way to do that is to look at the existing portfolio, which for us is, you know, nobody has in their portfolio a tiny cabin in the woods business, but... You know, some people have their portfolios, other unit-based businesses like, you know, like the Sweet Greens of the world that I mentioned. If you only have software in your portfolio, the odds that you're going to invest in our company, even if you're sitting across the table from me saying you, know, you're, you might invest in our company, are quite low. And so I just had to learn over time how to you know, get a thick skin and, and uh, you know, not take rejection personally and, uh, and, and seek out the right capital for the business.
0: Right. So it's, it's finding investors that are aligned with things that, that entrepreneurs entrepreneurs working on and not, you know, spinning wheels with, like you said, firms that have a completely separate agenda than what, than what you're aiming to do.
1: That's
0: right. Yeah. Now how about building the team? Like what, what were some of the, you know, challenges or things that you uh, focused on when you were bringing kind of like that foundation team layer of, of, of hiring?
1: Uh, Rightly or wrongly, the team, especially in the kind of early years, was a game of whack-a-mole of what am I really bad at and what is falling between the cracks. And so, you know, one example is, you know, after we closed the series A, you know, the very first thing I did was said, I need somebody to run operations uh, and I need somebody to do the accounting. Now, on the accounting side, it was, you know, I was doing the books with some $99 a month outsourced bookkeeper, and let me tell you that (laughs) during diligence, uh, it was not a painless process uh, (laughs) for, you know, a year or two years, whatever it was. So that's how it started was just, you know, who can I get to help plug some of the holes in the boat? And then over time, it became more about, you know, that plus, you know, who can take us to the next phase and the phase beyond that. Uh, which for me, you know, does come down more than I I think others, you know, would say to, have they done it before? I think in the early stage of the company, at least in my experience in companies, you can do a ton with people that haven't done it before, uh, but who are smart and ambitious and energetic. And then, you know, in the kind of post A, post B phase for me, it does become more about, you know, have they done the thing that we need done before, and I think that that in part is just a matter of risk, right? As the, as the company grows, you you know you're more accountable to more stakeholders that have more at risk, and therefore you have to be a little bit more cautious on the people side of the business as well.
0: well if I was uh, heading up to one of your cabins this weekend, what um, what would you recommend to me that would be a, a good book to read or a, or a podcast to listen to, to to just relax? Either it could be professional or just for fun.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I would recommend you do nothing. Uh, so don't go in with the mindset that you need to achieve something. And even reading a book can be an achievement that, that risks us feeling guilty if we don't get it done. Um, we do have some books there for you to discover spontaneously. So there's stuff like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and, um, and longer stuff and shorter stuff for you to stumble upon. I just read a great book called uh, Do Not Say We Have Nothing, which is a novel uh, set during the Cultural Revolution in China, which I knew nothing about. And uh, fortunately, have a book club that forces books upon me that, that sometimes I read and sometimes I don't. Um, so that was a great one. I also read on the more businessy but less like, you know, self help businessy side, I read uh, the Theranos book, Bad Blood, uh, which I can put down. I love that. And then a buddy of mine wrote a book uh, called *The Feather Thief*, uh, which I would be remiss not to recommend. Not just because he's my buddy, but because it's a great book about this kid, and it's a true story that you know this nerdy kid breaks into a museum to steal these these birds that were like collected by Darwin to uh, tie uh, to sell to the underground fly fishing market, um, which ultimately becomes a tale about like you know humanity's obsession with beauty and all this crazy stuff. So
0: those are my three. All right. Well, those are great book suggestions. Uh, you know, two of which I haven't heard of, so I'll need to check those out. And then I, I the bad blood one, like, is it, so I, I've listened to, you know, the ABC podcast, which was amazing. And it was based on that book. So should I still read the book based on you know, I listened to
1: the podcast? I looked at, I watched the documentary and of course thought the book was better. Okay. The book reads like a long, you know, he's a wall street journal reporter and it reads like a very long newspaper article in the best sort of way but the characters in that story are are so nuts and you know if you spend any time around startup companies it was funny all my non-startup friends were like oh can you believe can you believe all this and then me and my startup friends are going like yeah that's not not us we promise but like I can see how I can see how that happens Uh, so found it to be a cautionary tale and that sort of
0: yeah. That was a fascinating, fascinating story. Um, well, John, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through all the details of your background, your entrepreneurial journey. And of course the great things you're up to at getaway. And if someone is interested in booking one of your cabins, what do they need to do?
1: Uh, the website is getaway.house and we're on Instagram at getaway house.
0: Perfect. Well, John, thanks again for your time.
1: Thank you. This was great.